Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on, is working with the media worth the cost? Our featured speaker is Mari Chantel Milander Friesleben. Mari is the principal of Lucy Craft Laney at Cleveland Park Community School in North Minneapolis and has served the students, staff, and families of Lucy Craft Laney for 10 years. Mari was recently featured in several segments on Kara Levin's year-long profile, Lessons from Lucy Laney, where she got an insider's view of working with the media. As an educator, she has served in several capacities and locations, from teacher to assistant to the superintendent, assistant principal, and principal. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on October 15, 2018. Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Mari Chantel Melander Friesleben, and I have four names. Um, I got married in June, and so I added the last name Friestleben. But my first name is Mari. It has a U in there, just to throw everyone off. The U is basically silent. Um, my mother is Darla Melander. She is from Gully, Minnesota. Does anyone know where Gully might be? It is in Minnesota. All right. So Gully is a town of a population of 89. It's about 45 miles northwest of Bemidji. And my mother attended the University of Minnesota and met my father. His name is Marcus Stevenson. He is from Irvington, New Jersey. Does anyone know where Irvington might be? All right, we're 0 for 2. Irvington is kind of a suburb of New York City, so it's right on the New Jersey side. My father came to Minnesota to play football for the University of Minnesota. Um, my father is African-American. My mother is Caucasian. And uh, they decided that they were not ready to get married or raise a child. And so um, together, they found some adoption opportunities. Um, they landed on um, a family here in Minneapolis. They were a white family, family of faith, which was very important to both of them. And um, my mother after my birth went ahead and started the adoption process and I went into foster care and while in um, foster care my parents decided to kind of go their separate ways um, my father decided to go back to New Jersey my mother decided to go to nursing school after a few months my mother changed her mind and decided that she was going to give parenting a try. And she landed on the name Mari, which is kind of in homage to my father as Marcus. Chantel, 
which I believe is her bougie attempt to be French. <laughs> Melander, which is her Scandinavian last name, just to confuse people even more. And then last year when I married my husband, I added Friestleben. I was born on November 21st, 1974. So I will be 44 years old next month. My mother um, brought me to North Minneapolis, which is where we lived and where I went to school. I had the pleasure and honor of attending Minneapolis Public Schools. I like to tell people that I have been in the district since I was four years old. I went to the old Jordan School, the old Jenny Lind School, the old Lincoln School, and I ended up graduating from Washburn High School in 1992. I was 17 years old, a child prodigy, I'm sure. I was dead set on wanting to attend an HBCU, which for those of you that are not familiar with that acronym, is a historically black or college, historically black college or university. My father felt um, strongly that that may be a mistake and I should reconsider. I ended up being accepted to the University of St. Thomas and so I crossed the river and majored in journalism. I was struck by the idea of journalism because it told a story and it strove to tell the truth. And I wanted to be a truth teller. And I wanted to find a way to make people aware of what was happening in the world and make them in a, aware in a way that they could act. That they could feel, think, and do something about what was happening. And I had very lofty um, hopes for my journalism career. I wanted to go to Guatemala. I wanted to study guerrilla warfare. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see everything and tell everything. I was already a conspiracy theorist, of which I still am in many ways. And I was going to take the facts and I was going to present them in a way that would just incite people for something bigger and something better for all humanity. Um, I loved expressing myself through um, writing and through a verbal expression in um, journalism, in the journalism department at St. Thomas. You had to make a choice pretty early on. Were you looking for print journalism? Were you looking for you know, television and, and audio journalism? Which kind? And I could never decide which one I wanted because I, both intrigued me so very, very much. And I uh, decided to follow both tracks so that I could decide later if I wanted to be behind the scenes and, and typing words out or if I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters. I got the very coveted Associated Press internship in the Atlanta Bureau just a couple of years after getting to St. Thomas. And the same day that I found out that I had got that internship, I found out that I was pregnant with my oldest child. And I had a decision to make in that moment. It was very much a crossroads in my life. And I knew that this was my opportunity to provide for my daughter something that wasn't necessarily provided for me. 
And as much as I absolutely and thoroughly adore both of my parents, and as much as I would fight anyone that would ever say anything negative about either one of them, I was not um, a priority in many ways. I did not feel like I was a priority at all times. And so I made a decision in that moment that my daughter was going to be the priority and that everything that I did was gonna be centered around her. Now, mind you, at 23, I regret that decision because I'm always going, why do you think the world revolves around you? And then I'm like, right, okay, <laughs> right, I did that. Um, but I decided, well, what else can I do? Where do I go from here? What options do I have? And I can't tell the rest of this story without acknowledging how deeply and how strongly my faith is. And regardless of where you are in your faith place, who I am and what I do is absolutely nothing without my faith. The thing is, is the reason why you have to tell people that is because a lot of people don't understand and won't understand why you do what you do without an explanation for something deeper. And so the way that I view what I do when it comes to my faith is that I view it as roots that go deep down like a tree into water. And mine go deep down into my faith. I decided to teach. I was approached on campus with an opportunity that was targeting um, teachers of color in Minneapolis and St. Paul Public Schools. It was called the Collaborative, I'm gonna look at Bernadia, the Collaborative Urban Educator Program, or Q for short. It was an accelerated program where you could go in and you could get your um, degree, your teacher's license, and you could start student teaching all at the same time. This was back in the days when there wasn't quite as much of a microscopic lens on everything that we were doing. And so literally within weeks of stepping into the classroom to student teach, I was being put into my own classroom across the hall for a teacher that was taking a leave of absence. And everything from there just really blossomed and grew. I had no aspirations to be a principal whatsoever. In fact, when I looked at the principals around me, I thought to myself, I would never want to be them. <laughs> but I also didn't want to pay my student loans back either. And so I went back to school and ended up in that, tr that leadership track. And I just let kind of the wind take me where it would. I found myself back in North Minneapolis as an assistant principal 10 years ago. And I found myself fe feeling very, again, deeply grounded and deeply rooted to where I was. I found myself very purpose-driven while there. I found myself staring into the eyes of children that got off a school bus and made me feel like I was looking at myself. I found myself very deeply moved by who they are. I found myself very passionately inspired and motivated to confront their realities. And I found myself very sensitive to the ways in which who they are was being exploited every day. 
When it came to the media, I found myself very suspicious of how the media was presenting and reflecting who we were and who my students were. But I also found myself not in a position to necessarily turn the media away. We are public education. The sheer and simple definition of that means that we belong to the public. The idea of telling somebody that they can't come in and see what I'm doing felt like a violation of the public's trust to me. The idea that I need to be a good steward of what's been entrusted to me meant that anybody at any time should be able to come in and check to see that what's been entrusted to me is something that I am worthy of being trusted with. And so whenever members of the media approached me about wanting to be a part of or get a glimpse into what was happening at Lucy Laney, even though I found myself at some time suspicious, I almost always said yes. The reason why I'm priming you right now is because when you are in the world of public education, especially when you're working with elementary children, and Beth kind of talked about children that maybe um, tend to be, we use the word vulnerable, and I'm not sure I always like that term, but just for the purposes of this talk, the idea of vulnerable children then just letting anyone and everyone come in and have access to them, especially when you can't control how that's going to be perceived and received is something that makes a lot of educators kind of want to close rank a little bit. So when you are on the side of public education and people are coming to you and saying, wait, I want to see what you're doing. I want to come in. I want to take pictures. I want to record you. The thing is, is in my opinion, could there be people that are up to no good and that's what they don't want you to see? Absolutely. But I think the bulk of public educators are just not sure how you're going to portray us and our children. And so it's not so much like, no, you can't come in because what I'm doing is so bad. It's no, you can't come in because I'm not sure how you're going to project the way we look to the rest of the world and society. But to me, remember, I told you that my roots go deep down into my faith. And so it's not me that I trust and lean on. And I know that I can't control how people perceive and project me and my kids. And so ultimately, this is a public school. The door is open. You're welcome to come in. We had two incidences that led up to the project of Lucy Laney with Kara Levin. One was there was a two-year-old shot and killed on the corner just down the street from the school one summer. He was in his vehicle with his father when gunshot was, gunshots were being exchanged. He was um, shot while he was there, and then he died later at the hospital. It was during a summer school session. We had summer school at Lucy Laney. A lot of the students knew the um, child and his family that passed away. And there was a lot of conversation about like, oh my gosh, what do you do? How do you talk to kids? The thing is, is that usually when there's traumatic events happening, it's not so much how do you talk to kids, it's how do you give them space to talk to you. 
And a lot of people get worried about, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to, I don't know which words to use. Really, you just have to listen and give them an opportunity to talk. And so we brought kind of the, the adults around, the kids, and we were like, you know what? Just give the kids an opportunity. You guys do morning circles anyway. Let them sit down. Let them say what they need to say. Okay, they needed to talk. Okay, everybody wanted to write cards. Okay, everybody wanted to draw pictures. Okay, that's what the kids wanted to do. Well, what do they want to do with Okay, they want to bring them down. They want to bring them down to the corner. Okay, absolutely, let's do that. So, you know, we just talked to all the teachers. We talked to the kids. We said, we're going to walk down. We're not, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to say anything. We're just going to walk down there. And as the kids walk by, they're going to drop off these cards. They're going to drop off these pictures that say, we love you, King. Rest in him, King. Rest in peace, King. You'll be okay, King. I'm praying for your family, King. And we'll drop all these down and then we'll stand around here for a minute and just observe his life and his death because one thing that people really struggle with is when you get young people especially young people of color especially young native and african americans who are asking begging pleading and screaming that their lives matter it's because from a very young and early age we show them that their lives don't matter with all the subconscious and implicit things that we do and so when you take a minute to walk kids down there so that they can drop off a picture that they drew and they can stand in a circle, you are saying very clearly that his life mattered as young and as short as it was. So we're standing in this circle, again, not doing anything big, again, not sanctioned by my district at all. And I'm going to go like this with Julian Dirk because I'm sure that I am like the thorn in the side, the rock in the shoe, the bane of their existence. But at the time, I just didn't feel like I had the energy or the wherewithal to follow the long procedures. And so I just said, nope, we're just going to go down there. No big deal. I don't care who wants to come. That's fine. I put it on the school's Facebook page because we wanted to make sure that parents came as well. And we stood down there in a big circle. And if you're not familiar with our area, Penn and Lowry, we have on one of the corners that um, Levante King was shot and killed. There's nothing there. It's just a vacant lot. And so we stood in a, in a circle and we held hands. It was super simple. That's all we did. But I noticed there were a few reporters there and they asked if they could have some, some, some conversations with me afterwards. And I said, that was fine. And so I talked to these different reporters and Lindsay Sievert from CARE 11 was one of them. But something stuck out to me about her. After I was done giving the interviews and the kids and the teachers were back at the school, she walked over to where all the kids dropped off the cards and the pictures for King. And she was pregnant and she had on a fancy blue dress. It may not have seemed fancy to you, but it was fancy to me at the time. And she knelt down and just sat there. And when I saw that, I knew that she felt us. You know how when you have, you know how when you have some sort of family or, or some sort of function and there are, there are participants and there are spectators 
And you know how you can just, you, you feel that somebody is a participant. They are like in it with you. I felt like, okay, she, there's something about her that is in this with me. And then that was it. We didn't talk or do or say anything else about it. I don't even remember how much longer it was when I had my inter interaction with Ben, but there was, um, was, I can't, if it was that same year or the next year, I'm not sure. But for those of you that have been living in a cave, there was um, a, a, a protest um, that happened outside of our precinct in the Minneapolis Police Department, the fourth precinct. Um, it happened after a young man was shot and killed. And it's actually, um, I knew my husband before the incident, but I fell in love with him during the incident. And that's another Ed talk. Okay, that'll be for another time. But um, we, I'd gotten a phone call that said that somebody from CARE 11 wanted to come out because it was right around Thanksgiving. I don't know if you guys can go back and, and place that time in your minds, but it was in November and it was right around Thanksgiving. And I'd gotten a phone call saying that somebody from CARE 11 wanted to come and they wanted to interview kindergartners about what they were thankful for. And again, I said, fine, I don't care. That's fine. And I waited for him at the front door for a few minutes. He didn't come. Whatever. He'll figure out how to get to kindergarten when he gets there. I need to go do morning announcements. So I went and did morning announcements. And for me, it was very simple. Now, it was the morning after. So there were protesters, if I can jog your memory. There were protesters. And then there were, like, these anti-protesters, if you remember. And then there was, like, some shots fired and exchanged at the time. And there were people killed. And I don't think people really understand what it was like to, like, be on the north side at that time, like be, I don't mean just come, tell a story and leave, but like be, because there was, um, there was a lot of um, helicopter noise that was happening kind of all day and all night, and then we had the fire pits going, and so there was like this haze in the air, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, these children are continuing to come to school through this environment, and I, that has to be spoken out and it has to be acknowledged. And so I just did morning announcements, and I just simply was like just acknowledging what had happened and just reminding the kids that we absolutely are still moving forward with school and kind of business as usual, and we're going to have grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup, but I also, you know, want to just remind you that like, yes, you are absolutely living through this, and Ben Garvin was the gentleman from CARE 11 that had come, but what he did was he turned his, did you turn your phone on, Ben? He turned his phone on while I was doing morning announcements, and he tweeted out my morning announcement. And I would say probably about 45 minutes later, I got a phone call from my district's communications department. <laughs> Not from either one of these two individuals here. But what he, was, what he had tweeted out was not what was previously agreed upon. And so he, it was, he was asked to leave. And when, we, when I went, I was told that I needed to go find him. And, and, and when we walked out together, I said, I'm going to fight for you to stay. Because just like Beth said, we can't have our cake and eat it too. So either we want to be covered or we don't. And none of the education reporters are signed up to be our PR campaign managers. They are there to tell the story. 
whether we agree with it or not. And it is how I met those two that lessons from Lainey emerged. And so what you see behind me is the backdrop for that series. And if you want to watch the series, it's on YouTube. And if you want to watch the documentary, it'll be coming in 2019. Thank you. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.